Welcome to Opera San Jose Talks. With me today are music director Joseph Marqueso and assistant conductor chorus master Dennis Dubin. And Dennis is with us for Madame Butterfly. And that's why we're going to talk about Madame Butterfly, maybe. I mean, sometimes we actually talk about the opera. Every now and then. Every now and then. So this is the very first time we've had two uh, uh, of the top musicians in a podcast together. We usually have a stage director, but the stage director is in the theater today. Um, we are, we've moved to the theater now. We're in technical rehearsals. And uh, in 10 days, on April 13th, we will open Madame Butterfly. So I'm kind of excited about uh, getting this chat on because I know that today we had our first orchestra read. And... Before we jump into what that is, uh, I know that both of you work at the San Francisco Opera. But I don't know what either of you happens to do there. So, Dennis, let's start with you. What do you do at the San Francisco Opera? Well, I have to first say that when I began working in opera, I wanted to be able to do everything musically, um, on at least what the music staff is asked to do. And so at San Francisco Opera, I have done almost everything musically. I've conducted performances. I've prepared singers. I've played rehearsals. I've assisted conductors. I've coached singers. I've conducted backstage. I've prepared a chorus. What else? I've helped singers with languages. You're forgetting one big thing that you do. Oh, and prompt. I prompted <laughs> there as well. So that, that's a lot of things. But and how long I've, have you been there? I've been with San Francisco Opera now for, it's going to be my 12th season. How about you, Joe? Um, I'm not nearly as, as multi-talented as our friend Dennis. And I haven't even worked there as long. I'm trying to think how long. Twel- uh, 2012. So I guess this is my seventh year. And I am, what have I done? I have done, I prompted and I've done... Uh, rehearsal conducting, cover conducting, anything that they need me for in regard of conducting. I don't think I've ever played a coaching. Oh, no, no, I have, I have, but not not significantly. Usually I'm there for that one job, and uh, that's pretty much what I do. Yeah. Well, I couldn't do any of those jobs. Well, you raise money, though. That's that's an important job. That's the most uh, difficult job. I don't have to do that yet. Well, one of my favorite things about my office is I'm right across the hall from the music director's office where most of the coaching takes place. A mm-hmm. great deal of the coaching takes place there. And sometimes, Joe, it's you, and sometimes, Dennis, it's you. And assistant conductors often uh, are coaches. Mm-hmm. And so I get to hear singers as they come through while you're working with them, working through their roles, and I get to hear changes in people singing. And that's one of the most exciting things for me is sitting at my desk, supposedly answering email when I'm actually listening to what's going on across the hall to hear a singer try something and then try it a different way and then suddenly succeed in it. And uh, that's a, that's makes it worthwhile for me to come to work because who the hell comes to work to look at spreadsheets? I mean, really. That's right. We were all educated. (laughs) Yes. There are people who choose that career path. I just wasn't one of them. Nothing against them. I think that's what they do. I think that's what they actually do. The world would stop without them. Um, So uh, that's obviously not my favorite thing in all my jobs. Uh, But 
hearing art because I started out mm-hmm. as a singer, kind of, mm-hmm. and um, I I I remember what it's like when suddenly that top tone is real and steady and doing what it needs to do. And you know, it's going to be dependable in the future because you have figured out what you're doing wrong. Um, that's a big deal. And also, well, nobody ever had to work with me about a better interpretation. Um, but to hear a singer suddenly find the meat of the, of the role, suddenly realize what makes it alive. I'm happy for that because I'm happy for my audience. Well, thank you, Larry. I appreciate those kind words. Yeah. about our coaching. Now, I have to say one thing that's very exciting for me about being at Opera San Jose is that I, in fact, have a hand in every part of the preparation pro- process. I, I have the opportunity to prepare the singers. This time around, I have the opportunity to prepare the chorus. I also conduct a lot of the rehearsals and assist Joe in preparing the orchestra. Unlike in San Francisco Opera, where we're sort of more of a cog in the machinery. There are many people on the music staff. Here at Opera San Jose, I get the opportunity to really have a finger on the pulse of all the music making, and that really is exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, in large organizations, you're siloed. You have this thing that you do, and you're responsible for that thing. But, yeah, um, and at Opera San Jose, you have to move chairs and put out stands. And may. I had to put on my, my own stand for the rehearsal today, which is a good workout. And the podium. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I, I, well, we'll get to it at some other time. But there's, there used to be another podium. There was a podium for Moby Dick that was nice, and now I don't know where that's gone. I don't know if they made it just for that. But um, somebody more important wanted the podium I for guess themselves. They took it. Yes, I don't know where it went. <laughs> Since we have so many music <laughs> directors here, <laughs> no. well, there's always a boss, no matter where you so are. I'm gonna ask maybe Kelly. I don't know. It's but it's 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 the Moby Dick podium is not there anymore. Well, we'll have to hunt it down. Float it away. <laughs> maybe, maybe. It used to scare me because you had a chair that you use when you're conducting rehearsals, and it was on wheels. <gasps> And it was raised up off the ground like 10 inches yeah. on a platform that wasn't all that big. And I remember coming in and saying, Joe, you have to get out of the chair. <laughs> I remember now that chair is like, it's banished. I can't find that chair. <gasps> I wonder what happened to that chair. <laughs> yeah, it's been banished. So I was putting rugs on the, on the little raised platform, everything I could do. They, I don't yeah, want this I thing rolling off. And every time he would lean forward, the chair would lean back. I was like, we're yeah, going to have a dead conductor here. It was rickety today, too, because it has that incline. And so when I stand in the front, it goes down because of where that thing is. And uh, oh, We ring. need to attend to that. i got to figure that out. i got to figure it out. Bleeding conductors are of no interest they, here. No. Oh, no, they shouldn't be. They shouldn't be. <laughs> well, speaking of bleeding, we have Madam Butterfly coming onto the stage. Uh, uh, way back in 1985, Opera San Jose did its first Madam Butterfly. And... I kind of felt like we had arrived. We can do this challenging, impossible, behemoth opera, Madame Butterfly. And we had a gal who could sing it, Elena Lepelainen, sang all five performances. And it was like, so oh was my single cast era? No, uh, it was double cast, but the gal who was double cast with it chickened out. What was oh. the first year of operation? 1984. 
So that was the first year and the first year you did Butterfly. But we had been an opera workshop before that. Uh-huh. So we'd done a lot of work for some years. Okay. I think the opera workshop was up and running in 1978. Mm-hmm. I came in 1979. And the company was founded. Well, I graduated in 1983. And uh, Irene created what she said was going to be Opera San Jose that year. So I was hired right then, straight after graduation. Uh, she came to my house and convinced me that I should not go teach in Florida. She said I would be a charlatan just like all the rest. <laughs> so that Florida is a place for good charlatans. <laughs> also, it's a shout out to the academic world out there from well, Irene Dallas. What, yeah. Irene was very disappointed in people who were taking positions to teach young people singing who had never worked in an opera house. Mm-hmm who had no idea what was going to be required of those singers when they got to the opera house. And she felt like it was just stealing their money. I think it still happens. And worse than that, stealing their time. Because that's irrevocable. The, the, the years you spend in undergraduate school, they're gone. And you'll never get that back. And that's a foundation that you have to have in order to move forward. Of course, Irene was very different from most. Irene didn't think she was exceptional. Irene always believed that anybody who got her breaks would have been as important as she was in the field. She said, it's just having the opportunities. And that's how she did casting for all those years. She really believed if you cast somebody in a role that they can't sing, that they'll learn how to sing it. It was always a great astonishment to her that they actually went on stage and hadn't learned how to sing it yet. <laughs> yeah, that's a rare thing to, to sink or swim and swim in that, in that kind of Well, she was 24? When she walked out as Princess Eboli, and same year, Lady Macbeth. I mean, those we would never do that to a singer today. But it was right after the war in Germany. They had to do what they had to do to get the stuff on the stage. And Irene walked out there and sang them, and she had success in them. And uh, But that's not normal. That's not a normal gift. No. Mr. I guess she never recognized her unusualness. She never recognized that she was unusually gifted. She never. She always said, "No, no, no. I was. I was never thought of as a good singer." She says, "I was a good actress." She never thought she could sing, and yet when when you hear her Grand Prix du Disque Parsifal, and you hear that, and you go. Well, I think it's pretty good singing. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Hotter was not complaining. (laughs) So Hans Hotter, by the way, was the conductor, and he was very famous at the time. So at any rate, Butterfly. Canals Bush. We would be a bass baritone. You're right. Hans Hotter was was the Votan. It's Hans Knoppertsbush who was the conductor. Thank you for fixing that. That would have been embarrassing if that just hung out there. Um. So, in preparing Madame Butterfly... Well, and there were five performances? You were double cast with an uneven amount of performances? I believe so, yeah. Oh. I think there was... That year, I think there was one added... Because it was Butterfly. Maybe they split one of the performances. (laughs) No, I think... Maybe that would be equal. We had a Saturday-Sunday, and then I think we had a Friday-Saturday-Sunday. So, when did it get to 12? Oh, Lord, it took years. We were stuck at 10 performances... Uh, well, subscription performances, let's be clear. Because uh, if it was a Carmen or something, we'd be adding performances on however we could. Uh, by the time we left the California theater after 20 years, we Montgomery. left. 
pardon me, yes, when we left the Montgomery Theater after 20 years, uh, we were at 14 subscription performances. But for, say, Carmen, there were 17. Bohem would be 16. Butterfly would have been 16 by the time we left the, the Montgomery. And that was then the plan was to get all the way to 16 performances before we left. But the dot-com bust happened in 2001, and uh, everything kind of came crashing down. So we had reached 14 by 2001, and we had to sit there. We, we couldn't increase performances. So we, we moved across the way. The idea was to, to be at 16 and then go to 8. So it would be no stretch. We knew we would be able to sell enough single tickets to, to fill the hall to get to that many performances. But it was very different, actually. What, what we did was we moved in there with only 14 performances, and then we gave eight in the California, and every performance was sold out before the opera opened for the entire season, every single one. At the end of that season, we had $900,000 more box office revenue than planned, which was crazy. Wow. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's a way different time. I can't think of a company today in this country that does that many performances. Of, I mean, maybe the Met of Bolent, something like that. But. We, we, it was, it was, those were the good old days. That's, that's why my heart is bleeding now. We're, we're doing six and, and having trouble filling all of those, right? So it's a different world. We live in a different world. But let's not talk about that world. That's a science fiction world. Let's talk about the world of Chocho san and Madame Butterfly. I'll, I'll just ask an easy question. Both of you are so very acquainted with the butterfly from just being alive in, in your positions. You may not even remember this. How, how do you prepare? Dennis, let's start with you. How do you prepare? You're walking in to, and you know you're going to be coaching all these singers. Mm -hmm. And by the way, for people who don't understand what a coach is, that's a person who sits with the singer at the piano and plays through the role and listens to them sing the role and figures out where they have weak places and congratulates their good places and tries to solidify those and make sure that the singer has a good handle on the language, that all the note values and pitches are correct, and all that stuff is Also theatrical approach. You, yeah. you tell them, you try to find depth in their interpretation. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's you. Thank you. Your turn. So, so the question is, how do I approach a butterfly? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I would say I'm recent to opera. 15 years is recent. Um, I, I, of course, came from instrumental world. I, I was a pianist. Um, but I remember 15 years ago at Los Angeles Opera, standing in the wings, listening to the first act of Butterfly for the first time live. And it was Pat Rosette. And And I remember at the end of the first act, I was thinking, there cannot be a more beautiful compact and important first act ever written and of course that was my first entree into opera anyway but uh, the power of that music and the romance and the realism immediately took me over and fast forward 15 years later when joe asked me to assist this year i could only say yes now how do i prepare the actual score i've had a long time with the score and every time I've approached it it seems like I have either missed or lost opportunities to learn it well so this time around I combed through again I re read and reread the Belasco play 
I read and reread John Luther Long's short story. I made sure I was very careful with the Italian. And it was, but the whole thing was very exciting and very enjoyable. A measure at a time, Larry, to answer your question. You learn it a measure at a time. I have a unique thing with Butterfly also in that when I entered college as a freshman, I was a piano major, but they asked, but part of my scholarship, I had to be in the opera workshop in the Collegium Musicum. So here I am in the opera workshop. First semester, the opera workshop did the Elixir of Love. The second, and I was in the chorus, and I was fine with that. Second semester, we did Madame Butterfly, and they cast me as Goro. Well, I was furious. One thing, I'll be in the chorus, I'm happy to be in the chorus and learn the stupid stuff and go out there and sing it, it's fine with me. But now I have a solo role and I have to spend all that time preparing this solo role and that's time taken away from my piano practice. I was not happy with it. And somebody overheard me sort of grumbling under my breath, said, you don't know this opera, do you? And I said, no. And so he went to a big classroom at, at Stetson. We have those 19th century, huge ceilinged buildings. And we went there at night and he brought his portable record player and he puts on Madame Butterfly and hands me the libretto. So I'm reading the libretto while I'm listening to the opera. And well, I was a child who was a product of a divorce. And my father kidnapped me at one point. And I know what my mother went through. Hmm. I was sobbing by the end of this story. Oh my God, what's happening to this woman? You know, it's just, it owned me. I very happily learned Goro and went forward with, with my assignment pretty much as I should have done. Um, but Butterfly also holds a special entree for me into the art form. Elixir of the Love doesn't, doesn't hold that for me. It's Butterfly. Did you hear it before you heard it live? No. You never had heard any of it? No. What were you doing in the wings? Um, well, I was already employed at the Opera House, and I ended up having to play. I mean, I was not actually assigned to the opera, but I was asked to play an entire staging with Pat Reset the night before of her entire role. <laughs> so so I ended up having to play for all, of all, all of Madame Butterfly she's off stage 10 minutes yeah. right? <laughs> right and so um, but uh, I mean a week or so later they were on stage and so I actually got to hear it and, and that music just overtook me that I mean, love it's duet. one of the great love duets yeah, it, that, it is that, that love yes. it's it just, is a love yeah. duet it's miraculous yeah it's yeah I remember um, it was the it may have been. The, it was the first opera that I conducted that I didn't know already in terms of I didn't grow up listening to it. So I learned it to perform it, and um, that's a different experience than learning something that you love and having knowing that you have listened to it many, many times and you're familiar with it and you're approaching it from s someone who's already a fan as opposed to. Someone needs to learn this opera that you never heard. I I don't know how I had never heard it. It was probably right after uh, college, and for whatever reason, I had had a music education that was uh, chronological, but I never really, for some reason, uh, got very much into Puccini except for Turandot, which I knew very well, which I love. And um, 
it was scheduled that year at the Amato Opera, and uh, I remember having to uh, learn it. And as I was learning it, I thought I would get a recording, and I got this Karian recording with Franey and Pavarotti, and it was it was both wonderful and terrible because it's a beautiful, beautiful produced recording. It has every bell and whistle, literally, that you could possibly want, but it's not. It's not. A, it could never be a live performance. It was not something that was. It could be captured in a theater. It, it was engineered and it was created so it sounds amazing, but it's not anything that you would ever strive for or imagine ever hearing. And I think partly because of that, I'd done it a couple times there, and I came here, and that was the. F- it was the second opera ever I was. A, a principal conductor for and it was at festival opera in the summer and it was the worst thing I've ever done ever done and because of that it that opera was kind of like a a monkey on my back because I had I had I had not approached it the right way at least I had not approached it realistically in terms of what with with the cast that I had and uh and because of that, I uh, I spent a lot more time scrutinizing it and studying it than I would have had I didn't have that experience. Oh, so this time around, you looked deeply into those measures. Yeah, I thought, but what what was the problem? I had done it since that time. I, I when I assisted Doc, we did it. When was the last time? Doc we did is it? David Rohrbach, who the former music director who Joe replaced. It was when was the last time we did it? It was fourteen is the last time we did it, and before that, seven. I saw this—well, oh, we'll go into that production for in a bit. But, um, and so I had that experience doing it again there as the assistant. And then uh, I just made sure that as I prepared it that I, it, it was important for me, and it will be because we haven't opened yet, to know that that, that monkey— is has been removed from the because <laughs> it is so challenging and, and it, 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 it it's it, it it invites you to luxuriate in it and that is dangerous to do yes one when making music one may not enjoy it it's true and this is so <laughs> enjoyable and so seductive that uh it's hard to, it, it was hard at least to to maintain that kind of a discipline as you navigate through it, especially yeah, that love to it. It's just it's amazing. When you say the word seductive, that is what this opera is. It is so seductive, all the way through. All the way through. It you just sucked in this John Luther Long. God bless his sister for marrying a Methodist missionary and going to Nagasaki <laughs> and finding out about Chocho San. And bringing that back to us, well, I mean, that's a because how it, it's true to life because it happened to these to the very people who were creating the work, and then of course it's up Puccini's alley once again. We have somebody to bless. Uh, oh, this is something that people don't know. David Belasco, who wrote the play, lived was born in San Francisco. Of right. a, he was a Sephardic Jew, 
and as a child got involved in a theatrical troupe here in the rugged Wild West Gold Rush. It was Gold Rush era. So he, as a little boy, he was running around helping in the theater and he was a ticket taker. He was all kinds of things over time and was eventually allowed to be the stage manager, which is a, you know, kind of outside the conductor. I think the stage manager has the hardest job. And then he was allowed to act. And then eventually uh, we had some theaters in San Jose and he came down here and he wrote, produced, directed, built the scenery, built the costumes, and acted in the shows at 140 West San Fernando Street downtown. And eventually he leaves the area, I think about 1820-something or another, and he moves to New York and becomes the most important theatrical impresario in New York for three decades, 30 years. He reigned in New York. And one of the ways he did it was to introduce new things always. And for Butterfly, what he introduced was electric light. They'd never had that before. And and it was for the scene going from the afternoon through the evening into night into morning, right? And that was such a big deal. It was a play. It was spoken. It was a one act. Took no time at all. Well, the electric light thing was such a groovy big deal that that went then to London, where he also brought his productions and he was at the Duke of York Theater and produced it there. The stage manager was a buddy of Puccini and I don't know which is true. Maybe you guys will know which of these stories is true. There's one story that Puccini was in Paris mounting a Tosca and the stage manager sent him a telegram in Paris and said, you have to get here to see Madame Butterfly. The other story is that he was in London producing Tosca. Does anybody know which of those is right? Well, the only thing I can say is Puccini saw the play in London. Yes, he came to That's London. That's what, what I know. I don't know about Paris, but in London is where he saw the Yeah, the definitely play. he saw yes. it. Uh, definitely saw it in London. That's yes. where, at the Duke of York. That's where it was. At any rate, he came from someplace, and he went to the Duke of York Theater, saw it, and though he didn't understand English, he said, yeah, this is it. Yeah, probably because he didn't. I mean, he knew that he didn't... He didn't, he didn't um, the play was so strong that he didn't even need to know the language to know that this is... And by the way, he was a big advocate of that. And that was one of the big problems he had with his librettists. He felt that the action should be so clear that if you couldn't understand the text, that was okay. Because you knew what was going on. And that's what he was looking for in his libretti. And and he was trying to beat his libretti. He didn't get along with any librettist. The, the, the best in the world couldn't work with Puccini. Um... They, they would walk out. They would just quit. They, it was. It was. He was just too tough on them. And um, at, at any rate, that's why we have the thing is because this one little stage manager said this is right for Puccini. So we have this splendid opera. Little chance happenings. Yeah, I mean, what are the odds of that happening? I think what's important to remember about Belasco is um, at some point he worked. I think it's Virginia City. It's a little city yeah, yes. east of Reno. That's where he really sort of learned his craft as a young man. And the, there's a famous line from Belasco during that time there. He said that he had never met so many reckless women and wild desperados. <laughs> yes. And and the next thing after that, he, he said, and, and this is sort of like um, uh, interesting about him later becoming a, a playwright, is that he had never seen so many people die in such strange circumstances. And so that, to him, became a spot of, of interest. Of course, later, there's all kinds of death in, in his plays. Um, and so, specific to Butterfly, 
There are all kinds of deaths there as well. I need to study Belasco. He was a big, important thing in this country. Well, I mean, he was very important. In fact, in F. Scott Fitzgerald's Great Gatsby, there's a reference to Belasco when, when, when they talk about the lights and, and the beauty of, of his projections. And there was a Belasco Theater in New York. May many, still be many theaters in New York. Yeah, my, I, called I think Belasco. There still is. Yeah. I think there still is at least one. There were theaters in downtown LA too. Some of them are defunct. Belasco so, theaters. What a big deal guy. And we only know about him because of Butterfly. He's not part of our education otherwise. Fanchula del West. Well, Golden also. Girls of the West, too. Yeah. yeah. Just the one girl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Not in our recent memory. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's another one, yeah. yeah. So here we go with Maria Natale singing Chocho San for the first time. Mm. Is, is there an approach that's helpful to a soprano who's facing this gargantuan role for her first time out? But I never understood this concept of let's get somebody who's sung it, who's sung it a million times. Who needs that? I mean, I'm, I <laughs> well, mean, the singer I'm, doesn't. I'm, I'm very interested. <laughs> I'm very interested to be in charge. And with the person all the way that has never done it. I mean, I think that's uh, something you, we never get at, at major theaters. People have oh, done it a million not. times, you know? No, no, so no. You have some, only, only for world premieres. I mean, you have real fresh, yeah. uh, freshness. You have real nerves. You have real youth, youthful approach to uh, roles. I, I'm excited about all of that. Her singing is stunning. I think she's doing an amazing job. Mm-hmm. She, she, uh, yesterday at the preview, she sang the Unbeldi and... Oh, I'm sure they loved it. Jeez. And she's so beautiful. She is, and innocent, and um, her tone is extremely healthy, and uh, no issues with projection or being able to hear it, or... No. And her Italian is perfect. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, she has a lot of things going for her in in doing that. I know she's doing it again. I mean, this will probably be a role that she'll do many, many times because you don't get that, those kind of uh, choices when casting a role like that. You can have someone who is age-appropriate and uh, who projects a kind of innocence and has a beautiful voice. No, she's magical. It's nice to see the production again. This is my third time seeing It's so pretty. It's the, For me, it's. The, I remember the first time I saw it. Uh, I guess it was the premiere of 2007. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was the most beautiful butterfly I've ever seen and uh, the most unusual production I had seen at Opera San Jose at that point. And I thought, oh, this well, is really it is different. so stark, black, this enormous black box mm. uh, and all the shiny lacquered surfaces mm. and... Clean lines, I like that too. And it and it's and and you are looking at singers because mm. there's so so little stage business. Like the Suzuki, uh, she was so grateful that she's not having to move shoji screens constantly because to move the shojis you have to kneel down, you have to deal with your kimono, you have to get down on the ground, you have to move it a specific way with your hands specific way, and then you have to get back up, and then you can go do the thing you needed to do, and they're really an annoyance. And she never has to touch a screen in this show. They fly out. <laughs> it's only there as long as you need it, and then it goes away. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, you know, so many of them are just very. I mean, it, it's hard not to be with some of these operas, especially Puccini, to be very conventional and literal about. I mean, a Tosca set is a Tosca set is a Tosca set in many cases, and a butterfly set is a butterfly set as well. Unless you go like truly beyond and have something outrageous and like 
almost intentionally subversive. But this is one that is not at all subversive. No, it serves the function. But and it's beautiful while it does it. Yeah, it's so beautiful and compelling. And all the, every time they the 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 back opens up and you see some different drops uh, back there. Yeah, it's These, and all the drops are Japanese, actually Japanese fabric patterns, Japanese print, block prints patterns. They are all actually real, but blown up to enormous scale, of course. Mm-hmm. And everybody sees the red and white stripes and they think immediately, oh, the American flag. Well, there's no blue and there's no stars. It's just red and white stripes. It's a traditional Japanese print. Yeah, and, that's so uh, clever. That's so clever. The stars, when uh, Yamadori comes in that kind of yellow and those With archers. The cranes. Yeah, it's yeah, it's beautiful. I, mean, I can't think of ever getting rid of it. I didn't know what you'd replace it with. Because it's, yeah, it's like a iconic, one of our, maybe our most iconic production that we have. It's beautiful, 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 beautiful. beautiful. Yeah, and I don't ever want to have to see another one. No, it, it, it's... And I want Pinkerton on stage at the end. I want him getting, I want the audience to know that he's getting his just desserts here. He's not getting away with this. He's not going to go home to America and have his American wife and raise his little Japanese child. Uh, he's going to, he, he's getting his own. Yeah, he's going to be scarred and suffer. Which he earned. <laughs> naturally, naturally. <laughs> So I'm all about vengeance, you know. Forgiveness, forget that stuff. <laughs> That's for losers. <laughs> You're in the right business. <laughs> well, there it is. So here we are, 10 days before opening. What what dominates your thoughts? What are you what are you are you obsessing about any part of this at this point? Uh, you're making sure I get to the end tomorrow for the music read. We got probably halfway through, so I i mean, I'll definitely get to the end. It's just a question of whether I'll get to the end uh, luxuriously or whether right on, on time. So when we talk about uh, an orchestra read or a music read, uh, today was the first day that the, the orchestra was assembled as a group and started working together with their conductor. And that means Joe is having to go through and say this here, this there, this this fast, this this slow, and I. You tell them what it, what you have to what you have to do. Um, well, for for an opera like Butterfly, which is a lot different than Moby Dick in that there's a lot of institutional memory, so a lot of it is trying to uh, change the way that they had been doing it and their their predilections and how to play things and execute things to uh, be more flexible in, in how to do something or to, in many cases, just do what's written as opposed to what, not so, maybe not so much that is a tradition, but at least is, is a tradition here about how we've done things. So um, it's not as extensive as having to go through Moby Dick and having to stop every bit and explain what's going on because the players know the piece very well. It's just wanting them to know how much how much they know about the piece and how much is interpretation of what they know about the piece and changing the part that's about interpretation and making things explicit about how certain things are going to be executed, but also hearing them and what they're they bring to it and what because uh, they'll always do things that you're not prepared for but that you like like great keep that up that's an even better idea than what I had and um, 
to also just get us together again to play through because a lot of it is just as we play through things become more clear and they get in sync and you don't necessarily have to stop a lot and execute it but we have two rehearsals to get through the opera the opera so you have six hours of rehearsal time yes. to get through a three-hour performance yes. so to speak yeah pretty much and so we're oh, probably what do you think we're about halfway through probably more a little over half so tomorrow there'll be some subs different players who'll come in because they're uh, everyone has, is entitled to everyone who's going to be playing the run has to have a rehearsal it's not so important with these because we're not going to go through the whole thing but once the zitz starts and we and we run the whole thing all the players who are going to play the performance and the zitz proba is all the, all the orchestral musicians plus all the singers including chorus correct and that's the third rehearsal right yes yes um but it's certainly it's a, it's more relaxed than moby was because people feel more comfortable confident about what they're playing and where they fit in into the whole thing and everyone today was really upbeat about it folks who are not orchestral musicians might not understand that each orchestral player has their own part and that's all they they have there might be a measure that says with a whole rest in it and the word 24 written above so they're going to sit there and count for 24 measures before they come in again. And they don't know what's going on during that 24 measures. They only know that they're resting. So to be all together at one time and hear everything that's playing around you and know you're now playing with flutes. Oh, no, no. Now you're playing with cellos. Uh, that's, that's important for you to know. The singers have to do that. I encourage singers to come to the music reads. Uh, because I think it's better to hear it live than to listen to a recording. The, when I suddenly realized after my Madame Butterfly experience, which was not a happy experience for me when the orchestra arrived, um, I always got out a recording and wrote in my score who's playing these notes because I just have the piano part, right? And I was writing down, this is strings, this is all the brass, these are flutes. And so I could tell in where am I going to get my pitch? Who's going to play my pitch so that I know what to listen for so that I can f at least find where I am in the chord that's <laughs> who's doing this? Because you're helpless up there. You have no clue what's going on there. Because uh, moving from a piano to an orchestra as a singer, hearing the accompaniment, and those, it, they're unrelated. It's two different worlds. So I, I did that as a college freshman. I was, I was writing in. What I, what I had to know about the orchestra. But the orchestra is in the same boat. They know the flute part. That's all they have. And unless they go and listen to it somewhere, they're not going to know it until they get together. And then they're still not going to know it until they really are together because how it sounds in the middle of an orchestra is very different from how it sounds when, you're, when it's coming to you through speakers that have been adjusted for volume by the people who made the recording. So you may not even hear what you're doing in the orchestra because they want you to hear the singer on the recording and you lose a lot of orchestra in that. Right. So it's a whole different animal when you come together and really make art out of it. I think uh, what's important to remember is that there are this period right now, as we prepare the orchestra and we w await the arrival of the singers, both the singers and the orchestra have obviously are competing interests. The singers have their own interpretation and needs, and the orchestra has their own problems and needs. And it's the blending of those forces that's very, very interesting and exciting, and we're about to get to do that. Yeah, that in, creates in the tension. Yes that makes it feel alive.
Yeah, this is my favorite rehearsal of all, because then you have the singers, they don't have to worry about moving around, they just stand there or sit there in the orchestra, and they listen to each other, and they know, get a sense of when they have to check in, or if they're following someone or playing the same thing, so that they can begin navigating. So that, I think that's what a lot of the, the performance information comes in, much more than even this period, which is just making sure that we're all on the same page. Before I had this position, I never ever heard an orchestra read through. Uh, I had my own job to do. I was at my desk or I was in the scene shop or wherever I worked. I've worked in so many departments here, but I was never in the music department. And finally, as a general director, when the first orchestra read happened, I would go in and sit behind one of those black panels in the rehearsal hall because I didn't want to distract people, but I wanted to hear it. And it was a revelation to me and especially for Mozart and Puccini, that's when I recognized the real genius of the composers. Because when you're listening to singers or seeing the singers on stage, and the, so you're completely caught up in the acting and in the singer's expression and what, what all that stuff is doing, and you hear the orchestra, but there's so many layers of what you're doing, and what grabs your eye is how someone crossed the stage how they moved that object, whatever it was, chair, table, something, whatever right. they're doing. And you're caught up in that, and you're not hearing the orchestra. But when you sit, especially a show that you know well, so that you can sing all the parts in your head, right? You're sitting there and listening to how the composer prepared the phrase, built up to the moment for the singer's entrance, and then how that carried all those choices of who's playing what, when, what that sound is, how rich or deep or slender the sound is underneath this person, and how that carries that phrase to its climax, and then how the composer gets you back down out of it. And Mozart and Puccini, to me, were the two most impressive that I've, and I have to say, especially Mozart. Well, I'll tell Verdi you said so. <laughs> you know what? It ain't going to hurt his career at all. <laughs> no, Verdi is also quite a genius, but it's a different kind of thing. It's a different kind of thing. But my goodness, those three keep opera alive. Puccini, Mozart, and Verdi. If it weren't for those three composers, I don't think there would be opera in this country. Agreed. Certainly agree. Because that... The, the, they sell single tickets. Subscribers will buy, as long as you have enough Mozart, Puccini, and Verdi in your season, they will also buy tickets to Werther or Manon or Eugene Onegin, whatever other great masterpiece you're going to put up there. They'll, they'll go along with that. Uh, but single ticket buyers won't darken the door to a Manon or a Werther. They, they just won't come. And that's when I started... I recognized that when I was the marketing director. And when I was made the general director, I decided rather than to produce these great masterpieces that I happen to adore, that I can't sell any single tickets to, that I would rather do something by a living composer. Because at least he'll get some royalties, his piece will be heard, more people will know about it, the piece will be talked about it more, he can put another name on the list of performances of this new work. And I felt, I felt it was more important to do current composer's work, I cannot help Tchaikovsky's reputation. I cannot further Massenet's career. But I would be happily do anything to help Kevin Putz, you know? Yeah, I think that's become the, the general feeling, is that these new works are, are 
replacing those kinds of th uh, uh, of operas out of the rep more than displacing any other element. Oh, you're not going to kick <laughs> the, the three big boys no. out. You're not going to you're not going to hamper them. You might might somebody might choose uh, Silent Night over Stefalio. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Maybe they should. <laughs> yes, and maybe they should. But the the great heartbreak for me is we had over 200 world premieres in opera last year. I don't know what they were. I know Kevin Putz did, what is the, the thing for uh, Pittsburgh? Philadelphia. Yeah, Philadelphia. What, what was uh, Eliz I saw it. Elizabeth Cree? Yes. Yeah, Elizabeth Cree. I wanted to see it. Was that last year? Yeah, that was last year. Yeah. 200, how many in America? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. In America about. alone. Yeah. yeah. 200 world premieres in America alone. I mean, that's almost one every other day. It's amazing, and we don't know what they are. And and whether any of them will see a next performance, will we see Elizabeth Cree again? Or just the people in Philadelphia got to see Elizabeth Cree, and that's the end of it. Um, well, San Francisco did several uh, just a couple of years ago. Uh, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. I mean, there were the, what, two sisters. Uh, and there was well, another uh, one. Dolores Claiborne. Dolores Claiborne, yes. Girls. Oh, Girls oh, of the oh, Golden oh, West. West. Yes, indeed. The Dream of the Red Chamber. So, and and will we get to hear them again? Who knows? But that's that's a problem in our country. There, there's there's no excitement around it. The the general population, there's just no excitement. Although, if there are really 200, then maybe that's why there's not so much excitement. I mean, how can you be excited over <laughs> something that happens every other day? Literally. Yeah, but they don't happen where I am. My dream, when, when I first came along... In, in this business was that we would have a summer festival of world premieres. Because at the beginning, whenever we did a world premiere, we did several at, at the beginning of our existence, uh, they sold out madly. They sold out like wild. And I was all excited about that. And I thought we should do a summer festival of just world premieres. But there was no place to do it. There were only two theaters in town, the Little Bitty Montgomery and the gigantic Center for the Performing Arts. So you had 500 seats and almost 3,000 seats. But now, with the Hammer Theater, the California Theater, the Montgomery Theater, the CPA, the Center for the Performing Arts, which is vast, and even the Little Trianon Theater, which is really a recital hall, it's 300 seats and not really a stage, just a, a platform where you can perform from. We could do a, a range of things, move each one of them into its own theater, do a performance basically every other day for a week, and there could be an international festival of world premiere operas. And that would just be thrilling for me. But do you think people would come? If it were international, if you advertise it like Santa Fe Opera advertises, if you're known worldwide, I think people would like to see new work. So the, do you think that's the trick to finding new audience is to, because that's the battle always, let's find an audience for opera. Do you think the trick is to find a new audience for new works? That's to get people into opera. That's actually, I'm more practical than that. Mm. I'm ready for the old audiences who love world premieres. I'm for low-hanging fruit. <laughs> I'm not a missionary. Give them what they want. They want world premieres. Hey, we got world premieres. Come see them here. Uh, and we happen to have ideal weather in San Jose, and the, and the town is now very beautiful. It wasn't when I arrived here way back in 1979. Uh, there were no buildings. 
they had all been knocked down. It was just empty. You could stand at Chavez Park and you could see the library at San Jose State University uh, from from Market Street to Fourth Street. There was nothing in your way. Um, but now it's it's really a rather beautiful downtown, and and with these lovely theaters, it would just seems gosh if we only had somebody to give us eight million dollars. <laughs> Where did you get that number from? Eight million, because I know it costs us four million to do four operas. So I figure it's about a million dollars an opera. Okay. <laughs> How long is the Hammer Theater? Oh goodness, I don't even know. I really don't know. It was open before the California. Probably five years older. California is two thousand four. Four. So probably five years before then the hammer opened, but I really don't know the date. I've, it's not, not something I've ever looked up. But it's a great little hall. It's 500 seats, has a nice orchestra pit, and a, a nice very useful pit. stage. Yes. So that would be a good—and the acoustics are okay. They work fine for plays. It would be perfectly fine to sing in. So—and the Montgomery, we know that, that that's a problematic hall in that it, it's hard for the singers to be heard, but the orchestra pit only holds 26 instruments, and probably not even that many now because they've messed with it. Um, Oh, but that's a pipe dream. We're not going to be, I'm certainly not going to be doing it. I'm going to be raising dogs. <laughs> <laughs> I hope uh, German Shepherds. No, I'm going to have an Airedale. I'm going to have a standard apricot poodle and I'm going to have a greyhound. Does the apricot have to do with the color? Color, yeah. It's red. They get to be various shades of red, but. Brownish red? Mm -hmm. Oh, I, I've had one living with me for a couple of years. <laughs> They're very, very smart. Yeah, I know. I know. They use them to detect cancer. When you have cancer, you give off a specific scent. And the best dog in the world at detecting that is the apricot poodle. Wow. <laughs> That has a lot to do with Madame Butterfly. <laughs> well, okay, my friends, we've sat here and now we've gotten way off topic. So I think we're probably done. Thank you so much for taking the time to come in. I know you just went through a big, long rehearsal and it was tiring for you. And you go straight from that room to this room. And I'm so grateful that you came in to, sh to share your thoughts. No problem. I enjoyed it. And of course, we're all looking forward to the opening. And... Um... I mean, usually at this point, you feel a little anxious, but I, I, I think everything is going gonna, is gonna to be great. I don't feel that kind of anxiety. I feel everyone is peaking at their right time, and that um, it's going to be a very beautiful event. And I'll see you, if not sooner, on Saturday night, when yes. we have our 35th annual... Uh, pardon me, our 35th anniversary gala celebration in the California Theater. I'll be there. Okay, guys. Well, thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you, Larry. Bye.